Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And we are continuing our look at the works of Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, at least three novels, Uncle Tom's Cabin, The Minister's Wooing, and Old Town Folks. And this episode brings us to the end of The Minister's Wooing. Um, so we finished uh, a book I, I probably I thought I wasn't gonna, ever going to read, didn't even know about until a few weeks ago. Um, I think I had this volume on my shelf for a long time, but I never knew there was anything about the books in here besides Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, having finished The Minister's Wooing and, and being pretty excited about jumping into Old Town Folks, although it's, it's a bit long, um, that it's a little daunting that way. What is it? 500 pages? So about as long as Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, but that aside, I'm excited to jump into that. But The Minister's Wooing, it, you know, it's fairly predictable at the end. You, you kind of know where the story's going. Um, you know, if you look at the big picture of the story, we essentially have Mary and James, these two, uh, you know, people connected since childbirth who fall in love. James is the religious skeptic. Mary is the, um, the passionate religious um, girl who embraces the, the new trends in religion. Um, and then in the middle part of the novel, we have several conflicts. One is James's irreligiosity, and then he goes off to sea, and he's a sinner. He confesses to this in a letter, but Mary still loves him. Um, but he kind of, he, but they lose contact with him, presume he's lost at sea. Then, she, then we get into the politics of the tensions between the old Calvinist religion and the new wave religions of the Jonathan Edwards school. Uh, which is represented by our main character's family and the minister, the t titular minister, who is wooing Mary at this point. So uh, with James gone, Mary becomes the target of, of the minister's affections, and he she's kind of being primed to be the minister's wife, which, you know, all things considered, isn't the worst possible job uh, or position in a community like this to be in. And uh, she, um, she eventually embraces that. Now, a, a wrench is thrown in this with the arrival of Aaron Burr, who is also wooing Mary. Now, he's kind of the villain of the story, if we have one. It's, it, it is kind of a more mature love triangle story in this way, because if it's just the minister, James, and Mary, there's really no bad person here. Yeah, James is a sinner. He's not really religious. He, he doesn't share Mary's commitment to the faith the way the minister does. Um, but he comes back redeemed at the end, right? He comes back with his soul saved. There's this long letter he writes in which he confesses how he's been essentially saved. He has a born-again kind of Christian narration there. Uh, he comes back and marries Mary. Uh, that would be a love triangle without a real villain. Uh, and often love triangles don't have a villain. It's just fate and, and the way the heart goes. But you know, they, they often will have the one guy who's kind of the bad one. But here we get a fourth suitor who comes, or a fourth player, a, th a third suitor, essentially, in Aaron Burr. Um, and he's an easy grab for a villain because he is, by this point in American historiography, already a bad guy in American history. In history, you need villains and you need heroes. Of course, the British are an easy villain, but they're defeated, right? So... Um, 
you need a villain for after the American Revolution. And if you're a Hamiltonian, I guess it's the Jeffersonians. If you're a Jeffersonian, I guess it's the bank or whatever. That's easy enough. But Aaron Burr was just a, he, he's kind of that charismatic, ambitious villain. He's the threat uh, to the democracy, right? A threat to the new republic. So he's, he's just sort of a bad guy because he had that conspiracy and he killed Hamilton and, and all of those kinds of things. I don't want to get into the whole thing about Aaron Burr, but he's a clear villain in this story. Now, in the context of the tale, none of that politics really matters. Uh, Aaron Burr here is as uh, a suitor for, for Mary, and he's, of course, offering something that the minister can't, uh, kind of an exposure to a broader political world. Upward mobility uh, is more clear in his case. Um, but, but he's also trying to seduce this married uh, French woman who's who's arrived to town and, and is good friends with Mary. Her name uh, Virginie de Frontenac, a French Catholic, um, who's also like religious, so that's important. Um, but she's married and she falls for Aaron Burr, and Aaron Burr essentially like you know is trying to both marry Mary and sleep with. Virginie, so he's really bad. I mean, obviously he's the seducerist, the adulterer, you know, in the sense that he's trying to sleep with um, the Frontenac. Um, but Mary is the hero. Now we're getting kind of in the new material. I kind of established all of this in the first two parts of the series, but in the third part, a few things happen. Uh, and in kind of the first, we start with really resolving this Aaron Burr problem. He's sort of floating around. We get letters from him from time to time showing his efforts to seduce both um, Virginie de Frontenac and, and Mary. And we see through her conversations with Mary de Frontenac's anxieties and, and conflict and, and hesitation about, about you know, falling for Aaron Burr's charms. It's, it's a major point of tension in the novel that wouldn't otherwise really have it. Um, I, I do think it's pretty, she does a pretty good job here, Stowe, Harry Peter Stowe does a good job in creating conflict in a story that really doesn't need it that much or on the surface doesn't have it. Because it's really, you know, because the minister's so good, he can't be a villain. So uh, the two villains we get are like the religious tension between the old way uh, and the new way between supporting or defending slavery and resisting slavery. That's uh, um, there, too. And we get uh, attention, of course, Aaron Burr's uh, efforts to seduce this woman and at the same time pursue Mary. Um, so uh, now who addresses this? Who confronts this? And it has to be Mary. Mary has to be the one who does this because she is our, our heroine. So she's going to have to be the one who calls out Aaron Burr. So we... Um, this actually happens after the betrothal, so um, we get uh, we get some of this Aaron Burr stuff, and then we get to the betrothal and the quilting. So this is, I think, this is a New England tradition. I'm not sure. I, I've heard of this before. It's it's uh, the town's women make a quilt, a marriage quilt, kind of. You know, if you've ever seen these women gathered around the big um, frame. All, all doing the quilt at the same time. Quilts take a very super long time to do. My mom used to do quilts all the time. She was actually pretty good at it. I don't know why she never like sold them or 
tried to monetize that. But uh, yeah, it's good. She had a, she she had a she had a hobby that she really enjoyed. But quilts took you know a very very long time to do with just one person because you know knotting a a thing you just got to sew together the pattern, which it takes a long time. But <coughs> excuse me, is not as hard as like the quilting itself. Um, knotting you just tie knots periodically throughout the thing, pull, holding the the two sides together and keeping the cotton in the middle in place right but quilting you have to sew those patterns right throughout the whole thing and that takes a really really long time so women would gather and do this and it was kind of a ritual for the betrothal which is it's kind of a nice little bit of americana here um, and a reminder of this this it's almost like a, a barn raising but a, a woman's version of the barn raising um, but it also allows these women to get together and talk about things and talk about relationships and talk about marriage and, and, and teach Mary some things about marriage. So that's, um, it's, it's a nice chapter. But eventually we get to a chapter called Plain Talk, which is Mary's confrontation with Aaron Burr. And Aaron Burr is obviously the bad guy here, and, it's, and she's finally had enough, and she's dealing with her friend, Virginia de Frontenac, uh, who is broken up about, you know, the betrayal to her husband and her feelings for Burr and all that. So she confronts him and calls him out on on this, giving him actually defined threats. It's actually a, a quite nice section. It's really we see this is in some ways the high point of, of Mary's character. Quote, Mr. Burr, I wish to speak to you for a moment as one immortal soul should to another without any of these false glosses and deceits which men call ceremony and good manners. You have done a very great injury to a lovely lady whose weakness ought to have been sacred in your eyes precisely because you are what you are, strong, keen, penetrating, able to control and govern all who come near you because you have the power to make yourself agreeable, interesting, fascinating, and to win esteem and love. Just for that reason, you ought to hold yourself the guardian of every woman and treat her as you would wish any man to treat your own daughter. I leave it to your conscience whether this be a matter for you uh, in which to have or whether this is the matter in which you have treated Madame de Frontenac. So this is uh, a late 18th century Me Too uh, moment where um, Mary is calling out Burr for being the powerful uh, man taking advantage of of the woman who, by nature, uh, in the philosophy of separate spheres, is 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 weak. Now, how does this fit in? Now, obviously, Mary's not being weak, but this is not inconsistent with separate spheres philosophy, which we've seen uh, still work out not only in this book, maybe especially in this book, but also even in Uncle Tom's Cabin, where a lot of the politics of that book are how women, black women, aren't able to fulfill their roles as as wives and mothers. Right, and that's what makes uh, Eliza so compelling as a character is that she defends her womanhood by being a mother. All right, so um, so definitely she's kind of on the side of of, of separate spheres here. Um, but the point is, separate spheres is there's a, the, if you're a real proponent of it, like Catherine Beecher was too. The point is to make it equal, to make the two separate spheres equal in power and influence. Right. So it's not just women are confined to the home. The home is an equal of the outside world and women control that. So there's a, you know, although there's a separation that's like separate but equal, it sounds really bad. Right. From a modern standpoint. But they were trying to uh, uh, make the woman's sphere as important, if not more important than the male sphere. 
Um, so the way you did that is by laying claim to to this all this essential, this crucial role of religious morality, right? That that can be expressed uh, by women from the standpoint of the home. So Mary's courage comes in defending the home, comes in defending religious morality, right? So she can be Aaron Burr's equal, not in politics, not in wealth, not in power, right? But in in moral authority, right? And that's where women, you know, role is able to confront that of men, right? It's, it's almost like a, a, a check. You know, there's a check and balance kind of philosophy there. And this is why you have so much focus on the family and on womanhood in female anti-slavery societies, right? And Stowe's obviously part of that movement. I don't know. See, again, it, like, it sounds kind of weird from a 20th century standpoint, or a 20, especially a 21st uh, perspective, but it made sense there. Where, yeah, we're going to be separate, but but we are crucial. The world can't survive without that sphere, right? Which is actually very different from how, like Jim Crow, separate but equal was conceived. It was, it was more like this is white society, and we're just going to excise blacks entirely from it, right? So there, it was a hypocrisy. These women were actually trying to make this an equal, or even a superior in moral virtue sphere, not to defend separate spheres as an ideology, just to try to contextualize it, as I understand it. Um, and how does, anyways, back to the story, how Mary comes at Aaron Burr is with divine threats. Irreproachable, scrupulous Mr. Burr, you know that you have taken the very life out of her. You men can have everything. Ambition, wealth, power, a thousand ways are open to you. Women are nothing but the heart. And when that's gone, all is gone. Mr. Burr, you remember the rich man who has flocks and herds, but nothing would do for him? But he must have the one little ewe lamb, which was all his poor neighbor had. Thou art that man. You have stolen all the love she has to give, all that she has to make a happy home. And you can, ne- you can never give her anything in return without endangering her purity and her soul. And you knew you could not. I know you men think this is a light matter, but this is death to us. What will this woman's life be? One long struggle to forget. And when you have forgotten her and are going on happy and gay... And you have thrown on, thrown her very name away as a faded flower. She will be praying, hoping, fearing for you. Though all men deny you, yet will not she. Yes, Mr. Burr, if ever your popularity and prosperity should leave you, and those who now flatter should despise and curse you. I'll just jump in here. That's a little nice foreshadowing here because Stone knows Burr will be cursed and forgotten. Um, and he won't achieve his success. But this story is set right after the American Revolution when Burr was, was vice president of the United States, right? Um, or should become vice president of the United States. Um, anyways, he's, he's, he's in government. And he's, his star is rising at this point. So even if your popularity and prosperity should leave you, and those who now flatter should despise and curse you, she will always be interceding with her own heart and with God for you and making a thousand excuses where she cannot deny. And if you die, as I feared you have lived, unreconciled to the God of your fathers, it will be in her heart to offer up her very soul for you and to pray that God will impute all of her sins to her and give you heaven. Oh, I know this because I felt it in my own heart. And Mary threw herself passionately down into the chair and broke down into agony of uncontrolled sobbing. Uh, now, it's... The highlight of Mary's character is here, 
and it, it kind of does feel off that she's crying at the end. Um, but nevertheless, she forces Burr to basically relent. Now, does he redeem himself? Does he have his born-again narrative? Uh, obviously not. He just says, okay, I'll, 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 I'll scuttle off. Like, uh, he, I've been called out. I know my place. I'm going to go off and I'm, you know. But this isn't the Me Too movement. He, he's still going to be political. He's still going to have a career. But this particular conquest of his is, is denied. So bravo, Mary. You've uh, done your religious duty. Um, now, after this, it's, we're getting to the last 50 pages of the book or so. And we have more discussions between the women of the story over Mary's upcoming nuptials and what married life is going to be and should be. And those are all pretty fascinating, wonderful stuff there. What's expected of a wife. And, and we're reminded that this, like the sex education, if you will, is being done by other women in the community. Um, now we know from church records and things that many, there's a lot, there was premarital sex in Puritan New England. Stowe's not gonna talk about that. Mary's not doing this, obviously. But there's this idea that, you know, women are teaching her what being a wife is. Um, now, obviously, she already has that moral center, but the practical aspects of being, being married are, are talked about throughout this part, both in the quilting and in this chapter. Then we get to chapter 35, right towards the end of the story, and James returns rich. Uh, how just how rich isn't really explained till later till the, like the epilogue of the story, but he returns, and Mary is now confronted with her choice. She is betrothed, promised to uh, promised to Samuel Hotskins, the doctor, uh, the minister of the title, uh, who remember he's a real person, right? He's part of the Jonathan Edwards New Divinity Movement, and James is like pretty upset about the fact that she's betrothed and says, well, you haven't married yet. You can still marry me. And didn't you get my letter? And Mary's like, what letter? And she finally talks to her mother about it. And her mother's like, oh, yeah, that letter. And, and she sort of had it um, and shows him the letter. And the letter is a recounting. And we get a whole chapter that's essentially just James's letter. We get a recounting of his born again experience. Um, his religious revitalism, how while he was on that last quest, he's reaccepted Christ, uh, begun a new life, and this is just typical new light, first great awakening kind of Christianity being expressed here. It's just now through James, and it's more impactful for our readers because unlike with the minister and unlike with Mary, he's had a spiritual arc. He's, he's turned away from Christ or has never really embraced him, but now has embraced him. Quote, I do not need any arguments now to convince me that the Bible is from above. There's a great deal in it that I cannot understand, a great deal that seems inexplicable, but all I can say is that I've tried its direction and find in that case they do work. That is the book I can live by, and that's enough for me. Mary, I'm coming home. That's how the letter sort of ends. But the whole, the four pages of this letter are an accounting of his um, spiritual rebirth. And before that, we had an accounting in a previous letter. I think that was also a letter, yeah, where he talks about his sins and how he was drawn astray as a sailor and even 
sexual immorality is hinted at in that letter too. But but here, this is all about rebirth and revitalism. So he is redeemed. So he's now the equal of the minister in in morality. And in addition, Mary loves him. So he's the one she should marry, right? But as the next chapter's title reminds us, there's the question of duty. She's been betrothed. At one point, uh, it's really interesting because Catholics can't divorce, but Virginia de Frontenac says like, oh, if you just had gone to a priest, if you were a Catholic, this wouldn't be a problem. A priest would absolve you of any sins from breaking the betrothal, right? Which is kind of interesting because obviously Protestants could divorce. Catholics couldn't, but the idea that there's a sin in breaking a betrothal is more of a threat to Mary than it is for a Catholic, you know, because Catholic could, yeah, admit to the sin and maybe be, confess it. But I don't know. The theology there is a little muddled, I think, the theology on marriage. Because I don't see why it would be a sin to break a, a promise to marry um, or even much of a spiritual problem. It's maybe a contractual one if you sign a contract. But even that is, you know, you're not officially married yet. The marriage is the contract. The marriage is the promise. Anything before that is... Uh, but in maybe 18th century and certainly 19th century, gender politics, yeah, maybe it's, it's a little more hairy. But certainly she feels a moral burden because it would be easier if Hoskins was a, was a bad guy, Hopkins. But he's not a bad guy. He's great. He's wonderful. And he's on the right side of, of the history of religion. He's, he's a perfect match for Mary in every way. And Mary's mother likes him and the whole town likes him, and except maybe some of the old fogies. And when the choice was her, him or Burr, obviously he was the right choice, right? Burr was the baddie. But now James is back and redeemed. So this is the question. This becomes the question of duty. So Mary goes to talk, basically talks about this with uh, the doctor. And, and the doctor's like, yeah, obviously you have to be with James. It's great to hear he's been redeemed. And yeah, I withdraw my promise to you. And I'll go on with my life happily ever after. Um, so, and we both, you know, both he, he just gives up the, the, the wooing. The minister's wooing ends very undramatically. I, I, I mean, it's a nice chapter where it's what you expect is going to happen. Obviously, you, you need her to get out of that marriage. But, or out of that, that betrothal to marry James, but I, you know, I think it's it's relatively anticlimactic where he just sort of pulls away. Now, just an interesting historical note about this. I, if you look up Samuel Hopkins in Wikipedia, now it's the same person, it's the same name. Um, the age is different, though. So he's forty years old in this book. Samuel Hopkins, the the actual New England abolitionist theologian who he's based off of would have been um, 70 probably in the the period of this book so it's not quite the same person um, obviously but he apparently didn't marry I don't find anything in Wiki usually they have the mayor if he if he married if a historical figure is married or has kids nothing like that here it doesn't mean he wasn't um, but yeah single all his life, but not quite the same person, but, but close-ish. Um, maybe it's just borrowing the name. It, it's obviously not the same person. 
but I like to think it's obviously based off of him. Okay. Anyways, we're getting to the end of the story then. Then it's just uh, essentially uh, the chapter is the sacrifice where where Hopkins gives up the the marriage betrothal to uh, to Mary, and then we get uh, the wedding. Uh, and that's pretty much the end of the story. Now we get uh, the final details in a few epistles. Um, the marriage is actually recounted by by Prissy. Now I haven't said anything about Prissy, um, but she's kind of important towards the end of the story. She was she's like the dressmaker of the town, and her important role here is that she basically helps prepare Hopkins for Mary's choice. And and tells him that James has come back and, and Mary really loves him. And that's what encourages Hopkins to 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 free her and free her to marry James. Um, and then she has this important role of narration at the end. So she narrates the events of the wedding um, and all this stuff uh, in a letter to her sister that we get uh, documented here. And she also. Uh, Yeah, writes a letter at the end, which talks a little bit about what happened to Mary. Actually, a series of letters here, which tell us, for instance, that James came back rich from his voyages in China. Uh, so there's a little bit of a global perspective here, which is nice because, you know, I'm pretty familiar with the early American China trade because I wrote a book about it. My Ph.D. dissertation was about that stuff. And so it was pretty soon, like in the early well, late 1780s, early 1790s, that you had the first voyages from the United States to China, uh, at, you know, independent America trading with China with ginseng and sea otter furs and stuff like that. I, you know, I looked at a lot of those early looked at a lot of those early early voyages. Um, the Columbia was the was one of the first, um, the first major one. Uh, so we can imagine uh, James is on one of these voyages in the in the early in the early American Pacific, which is kind of a nice uh, little tidbit for me. But he comes back rich from this, and he's able to build a big house for Mary, and they're able to live happily ever after. And the minister presumably goes on and um, it becomes an age down. Samuel Hopkins continuing his abolitionist work, and being a new light, new divinity minister. Um, so, yeah, all in all, a pretty good book. I don't know if it's for everyone. It, it, I wouldn't have thought it's for me. Um, I do think there's enough here to, to, to make it of broad interest. It is ultimately a pretty predictable sentimental novel uh, where we have a lot of crying and, and moping and introspection by our female characters. I think it's also a really good window into like the separate spheres philosophy. And if you need to know more about New England Calvinism in this transformative period of the American Revolution, it's a good text for that. The addition of Aaron Burr, I could take or leave. I think it's, it's fine. I, it's a little distracting from time to time. They could have just thrown in another villainous uh, seducer or something um, without it being a historical figure. But yeah, I don't really care that much one way or another about Aaron Burr. But that's in the story, too, and it's it's not bad. All in all, good book. Uh, 
check it out if you're interested. Um, I think I've said enough about it over the last few episodes and this one. Um, so we're coming to, for the next two weeks, two and a half weeks, we'll be looking at Old Town Folks, um, which will be the final Harry Peter Stowe book we'll look at, I think, forever, unless Library of America produces some other volume of her works. Um, and then we'll do that. And then I think next up will be Black Reconstruction in America. Um, I don't have the Library of America version of that, um, so I'm going to cheat. Uh, in fact, they have, I already have a copy of this, so I don't think I'm going to buy the Library of America version unless I really want to splurge or I win the lottery or something, because I, I have the, like, the traditional paperback version of Black Reconstruction in America. I think in terms of page length and you know, words on page, it's pretty similar. So that will be probably a four-week journey to read that. Um, I'm currently reading Forever Free, which is a very brief history of Reconstruction and Emancipation by Eric Foner with some wonderful uh, visual essays by Joshua Brown, um, a nice little summation of Eric Foner's massive book on Reconstruction. I might be rereading reread that too as I go along with Du Bois, um, but I'm really super excited to get into this. It's a book I've wanted to read for a long time. Um, so I'm going to begin uh, preparing the ground for that. I want that to be, I'm going to make that a serious, in-depth discussion. The episodes will probably be a little bit longer. Um, I may even have like one-hour episodes, eight one-hour episodes that really dive into the history and politics and memory of Reconstruction. And that's just a really well-written book, too. So I'm really excited to do that. But for now, we're going to have a more casual uh dance with, with New England society and culture with Old Town folks written in after the Civil War, written in 1869. Um, that's not even towards the end of Stowe's life. She lived until 1896. She lived a very, very long time. But this is, uh, I think this is just more like a slice of life type of novel. Um, a lot of little vignettes of New England life. You can kind of get that sense from the title. So we'll do that for the next couple of weeks. And then uh, a full month of Black Reconstruction in America, which I'm really, really excited for. I ordered some more Library of America books. One of those is the sequel to the Civil War books on Reconstruction. And if I get that in time, I'll, that will do that after Black Reconstruction in America. So we might have two months of Reconstruction to uh, look forward to. So that's it for now. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time as we begin our look at Old Town Folks. Oh, 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 oh,